Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. This episode was sponsored by the PVS Studio team. It promotes static code analysis methodology in general and its PVS Studio tools in particular. Static code analyzers allow you to find bugs in source code at the development stage. This helps to reduce the price of fixing them. PVS Studio performs code analysis and issues warnings on the fragments of code with a high probability of having bugs and potential vulnerabilities in them. The tool supports C, C++, C Sharp, and Java, and it can work with Visual C++, GCC, Clang compilers, and some of those used for embedded systems. The analyzer works on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. PVS Studio can both be used as a standalone tool and integrated with Visual Studio, IntelliJ IDEA, SonarCube, and so forth. In the show notes, you can find links to the PVS Studio website and the article, Technologies Used in the PVS Studio Code Analyzer for Finding Bugs and Potential Vulnerabilities. We've all been there. You get placed into a new project only to find that it's actually really old code that nobody in the office knows anything about. A lot of developers have a really hard time jumping into a legacy code base because it takes an entirely different set of skills to understand legacy code than it does to write new code. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things to keep in mind to make your journey into legacy code easier. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I have a new job and I'm going to have to travel to Indiana for a week. This episode will come out after I get back. I don't know for sure what their policy is as far as them being mentioned in podcasts and stuff, so I'm not going to. Obviously, you could probably figure that out from LinkedIn if you really wanted to. My previous job, it was good. There just wasn't enough work, and so I wasn't making enough money to keep the lights on, and so I had to skedaddle out of there. So I'll be doing that, not this coming week, but you know, like next weekend, I'll have to drive up there and stay there. And then my wife is running the marathon in Indianapolis, which I'm really looking forward to that because I'll, I'll drive down from Fort Wayne down to where she's going to be because that trip like, is my favorite trip of the year. It's really pretty much the only trip I take because of the food situation. There's a restaurant there that has elk burgers that are amazing. And if you go to the marathon the day after, the other fun thing that happens is they hand out these Skyline Chili Dog coupons and you can go get a, a free chili dog right there. And they hand them to the runners and the runners, because they've run 26 miles, they don't want to eat. And so they'll just give you the coupons. And like, I can eat like five chili dogs for free. It's fantastic. Like, that's like a big thing I wait for. So how about you? Have you had the uh, elk burger over at Publicity? I didn't know they had one. Yeah. This is Bubs in, I think, Zionsville. This is maybe five, 10 minutes away from where you live. I will go find that then. I'll check on that tomorrow. When I lived out that way, I used to eat there a lot because of their burgers. And you, I told you about it. This is the place that had the camel burger. You did not tell me about that. Come on, man. Yes, I did. I think I even mentioned it on the podcast. I would have. We just had an episode about memory and you don't remember this. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have an episode on gaslighting next. Uh, <laughs> <then>. <laughs> so uh, it's been an interesting day for me. My uh, car broke down this morning. Thankfully, it's Sunday, which is an odd day for us to record, but we're recording because Will's going out of town and I've been out of town for family stuff. So I was at church. I pulled into the church parking lot this morning and uh, smoke was just billowing out of the hood of my car. Didn't start until I pulled into the parking lot. I was like, all right, well, you know, I didn't know my car was that evil. Uh, yeah, caught on fire going into the church parking lot. I get that. Yeah, I was waiting on some reaction from you and you just kind of rolled your eyes. I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, some of the guys at church helped me figure out that it was a radiator hose. Well, actually, I opened it up and I saw the spraying out and I was like, all right, that wasn't too expensive. So between services, I took Amanda's car over to AutoZone and bought a new hose and some antifreeze. And then after second service, uh, one of the guys from church helped me to take off the old one, put the new one on and all that fun car maintenance stuff that 
I know just enough to be dangerous with about. So for a graphic designer, he's a pretty useful, dude. <laughs> nice. I got to pick on him. We're on the creative team together, so uh, we get along really well. But y'all, it's just been one thing after another all month long. I mean, I told you in a previous episode about uh, my grandmother passing away. And first she got sick and I, I went up to see her. And then the very next week she passed. So I went up for the funeral and just that threw everything off. Then we had I had to go into the office a lot the week after I got back from that because we had a consultant in. And then this past week, I took a couple of days off because some friends of mine were getting married and I was uh, helping out with that. It's just been a lot. Just go, go, go constantly. Not very much downtime. Plus, this time of year is a lot of fun. There's all sorts of parties and like just fall activities going on that you want to go to and stuff. So this episode is coming out the week before Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And I am taking the holiday as a break time. Really? Yeah. I'm not traveling. I'm not doing anything. Amanda is going out of town to visit family. And I'm just going to stay home and relax. The weekend before, I plan on getting myself set up and prepared. I'm just going to rest for three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Do no plans. If I go out, it'll be a spur of the moment. I take that back. I will go see a movie Friday because that's been a tradition in my family for a long time. I can't miss my Black Friday movie. But uh, other than that, I've got nothing planned. And I'm not going to. I may sit around and play video games. I may write episode outlines. Who knows? Wow. That sounds nice. I mean, we're having the wife's family over at the house for Thanksgiving. And I have a feeling I'll be working on something just because I've got so much stuff in the queue. Yeah. Like a break isn't happening this year. Yeah. I can feel it coming on. I'm like, I know at Christmas I'm not going to get one because I'll have family in town and stuff going on all the time. Parties and things like that to go to. So like, you know what? My family's not coming into town. My girlfriend is going to be out of town. It's just going to be me and the dog. And the Nintendo Switch. And the Nintendo Switch. And the beer. (laughs) Oh, uh, well, I also have a PS4 now, so I might play a little bit of uh, of that. I've got uh, Witcher 3 on it. I kind of want to play through. So I might spend like 16 hours playing video games on Thursday. As you do. Well, the thing is, I don't really play a lot of video games. And so it'll be fun to actually, you know, do that for once because I just I'm on the go so much that I get home and I'm just wiped. It's time to sleep. So speaking of sleep, I really also don't have a uh, good transition into book club. So uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump into it. Section three of how to think like a coder without even trying looks at learning language. It starts with a brief introduction to machine code, then gets into what is syntax and how it can be used or misunderstood. It even goes into how IDEs or integrated development environments help with your syntax. Next, the book talks about forms of coding, discussing the differences in interpreted and compiled languages. And the book specifically discusses object-oriented languages before going into data structures. Then it dives into the core components of code, such as algorithms, loops, conditional logic, operators, etc. And finally, the section closes out talking about debugging and all the joys and funs of that. Funs? That's plural? Yes. There are multiple fun things to do when debugging. Go listen to our episodes on it. You'll find out how. Or you could read the book, which we'll have a link to in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, I grabbed a message from our Slack channel from Adam Staples Dev. Finally got to the HTTP episode. You missed an incredible opportunity to mention the best HTTP error code, 418. I'm a teapot. This is from the Mozilla Developer Network web docs. HTTP 418, I'm a teapot client, error response code indicates the server refuses to brew coffee because it is a teapot. This error is a reference to hypertext coffee pot control protocol, which was an April Fool's joke in 1998. I remember when this happened. Adam goes on to say that the episode was fantastic. My team has needed to deal with a lot of crazy session stuff lately. This was a great summary. I especially liked all the analogies Will was really on his game this episode. 
So I'll give a little peek behind the curtain as to why I didn't include the 418. I do remember seeing that as I was going through. The thing is, is sometimes I write episodes kind of late and I'm sitting up and I'm sipping scotch and I'm trying to get stuff done. And I see stuff like that and I'm thinking I should include that. And if I'm just being honest, I'm like, did the scotch suggest that or did I suggest that? I don't put it in. And so that's what happened there. That's why I didn't bring that one up. I was just like, yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, I thought you didn't do it because we mentioned it in a previous episode where we were talking about uh, HTTP error codes. I think we talked about it in the seven layer burrito of networking or something. Yeah, we did. There was one episode that we did where we talked about error 418. Because when I saw this comment that you selected, I was like, well, we did talk about that, just not in that episode. So go check out the seven layer burrito of networking. Adam, I think that it's in that one. If not, then let us know. We'll definitely find the one that it's in. But in the meantime, send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. This episode was built in response to a discussion with one of my wife's relatives. I'm not exactly sure. I think he's like a second cousin. Mark Carringer, while he was passing through town, uh, he was at my in-law's house and we just kind of talked uh, over breakfast. But essentially, he was asking how to deal with legacy code bases well, because that's come up in his work. So made an episode around it. Dealing with massive legacy code projects is not the same as dealing with brownfield projects written in more modern times. Not only is the approach to write code itself likely to be different, but the way people handled errors and failure conditions is often kind of weird, or at the very least, it's substantially different than what you're probably used to. Further, unlike more recent brownfield code, it's very likely that you can't even locate the original developers. They may not be on this mortal coil anymore, as a matter of fact. And even if you do find them, it may have been a decade or more since the last time they touched the code. It's probably harder to build, harder to deploy, and harder to deal with in general compared to newer code bases. A lot of nice stuff has come out in the last 15 years that we didn't used to have. The code may also have major security and stability issues that you can't address without upgrading some components or even changing the way major parts of it work. So it's really painful to deal with legacy. Adding to the fun, if a truly old code base is still in use, that means that it is often central to the business purposes of your organization. Not only does this mean that there are major consequences for breaking the system, but it also can play havoc with your ability to make major changes to the code. Worse still, the people in charge probably remember that the previous developers could fix things more quickly than you're likely to manage. Finally, even if you do a wonderful job of fixing the legacy code and bringing it into the modern era, management will always never acknowledge how difficult the task was. <laughs> like I wrote almost never and you said always never. <laughs> Leave that in. Because <laughs> that's really what happens. It's always never. <laughs> I didn't realize I'd read that. I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like I wrote it the other way because like somebody's going to go, well, my manager didn't. Okay, well, congratulations. Because that's literally never happened to anybody else. <laughs> The thing is, they may now happily assign you other legacy code bases. Yeah, so if the description of this situation sounds familiar to you, then this episode is for you. In it, we're going to talk about how to get your mind around a legacy code base. While many of these techniques are applicable for newer brownfield development as well, they are especially useful for situations where you're dealing with really old code whose writers are unknown or no longer in the organization. Or, you know, like they've left us, as it were. So, first off, you gotta get to the code. Yeah, and this ends up being a lot more fun than you would like it to be. Beach has had some experiences. I've had some experiences. I actually don't know anybody that's been like, oh yeah, I just found the legacy code and it was in Git. And I just pulled it down. (laughs) Like, that never happens. So, don't make me spew my beer like that, man. (laughs) Yeah. 
don't know, you know, like I'm just thinking of like you're coming out my nose laughing so hard at that one. There's like some mythical dude somewhere that like all the things work for him, you know, like you know, all his children are above average, all the children he knows are above average, you know, he's perfect, but like for the rest of us, no. This part's gonna suck. Actually, the whole thing is, but uh here's a deal with it. This can be a really big problem. It's entirely possible that this code was never source controlled in the first place. I know people that well into the 2010s were doing source control using folders. Basically make a zip file every day of the code as it was at the end of the day. And they labeled it and they named it. And that was a backup. That was a source control. So you're probably going to run into this. You may legitimately have to find a three and a half inch floppy drive or worse. So we're talking, you know, like the big floppies. We're talking nine-track tapes. Yeah, I have literally been asked for the source code and been handed a flash drive and told, oh, yeah, I just recently transferred it over to this flash drive. Yeah, my favorite is when they hand you a zip disk and you're like, did you just tell me what I could do with myself? Like, who has a zip disk? (laughs) Like, everybody had a floppy at some point. Like, somebody's got a computer in a closet that has a floppy drive. But, like, zip disks were popular for, like, 36 minutes in like 1999 and then never popular again. And you'll run into this. So this is a real problem. I just had to Google zip disk because I don't remember them. I had one. I was real proud of it. Never really needed it. Just, oh, I vaguely remember these, but what? Yeah, but you'll run into that still on occasion. The other fun thing is when you get the code, you don't actually know that it's really the code. You're going to have to verify that that code is the correct code and that may be impossible. Because how do you verify runtime behavior through code? Well, okay, you can see the happy path, but are you going to actually test every error condition and every branch in the program to make sure that it matches what the real system does? So you may not even be able to get the real code as it currently stands. The other problem that you'll have is some of the code assets may have hard-coded links to file system assets that no longer exist. So stuff like DLLs that are in a bin folder somewhere on the root of the C drive, on that developer's computer and they were never backed up, guess what? They've got a reference to it. You don't have it. You're not compiling. Mm -hmm. The other thing you're going to have to do, probably, is you're going to have to hunt down old versions of any third-party components and libraries that were in use the last time this code was worked on, just so you can get the initial compile. This really sounds easy, but a lot of companies did a really poor job of managing dependencies especially a long time ago, there weren't package managers. It was file system based. That's just the way we did things. Yeah, for instance, there may have been a network share where DLLs were dumped raw and people copied what they needed out of it. They have um, been helping out somewhere and they had a developer that created a custom DLL for the stuff that she was building. So she didn't have to like rewrite the same set of code between projects. And she was kind of at that junior to mid phase when she did this, where you're starting to get into more complicated things, but you haven't been burned by them yet. And she didn't get burned by them, but they did. And when I was brought in to help out with this stuff, it was interesting because we didn't know where the source code for that custom DLL that she had written was located. And so we had to go through all of her code to basically create an interface for it so we could figure out what it did in her code in different places <laughs> yep. and how to use it so we weren't like rewriting things and so we were using the same stuff as the, the other parts of the code. It was like, I don't know what I can call with this. Yeah, it's ugly if the code is old enough. Mm-hmm. Like I said, there weren't package managers back then Yeah, <laughs> or they weren't common. Because you think if you're going over a 28.8 modem, like you're not going to pull down a big DLL over that thing as part of a build. And you're not going to update it frequently. That's just not something you did. A lot of legacy projects were really old even before package managers became common. So like they were well out of date before that concept ever really came in. And you're going to have to find somebody in your organization that can track this stuff down. Now, I'll tell you, that person is not you if you're a developer. And the reason is, if you were capable of tracking all this stuff down, you'd be smart enough to avoid this project. So that's not you. You can't really fix this stuff yourself, but you do need to make sure you keep management in the loop as far as you know the things that are blocking you. Now, the goal here isn't necessarily to fix the problem. It's to make sure management knows how big the problem is. Mm-hmm. 
So now you have to get it to build, which can be a pain. Once you have all the various bits of code that you need on hand, now you have to find a compiler that will work. <laughs> this can be tricky as some older IDEs have difficulty on modern operating systems. You may need to run it on a VM. Which means finding a disk for an old OS, which you may or may not have. Yeah. You will probably also learn that the specific version of the compiler will matter a lot. Yep. Yep even like minor versions, like people were not as careful back in the day. So you may have a situation where you try to compile and stuff breaks in some weird, subtle way and you don't get any indication that you have the wrong version of the compiler. I know people that are using uh, Visual Studio 2010 yeah. to work on really old code. I've got a friend that's using Visual Basic 6. Wow. Got other friends that are using InterDev. Yeah, so... It's definitely going to be a lot harder than you think it is. You'll probably also learn that the specific version of the compiler that they're using is going to force you to use build scripts in addition to the compiler. So they may have additional compilation switches that were passed in. And if you just load the project up and try to build it, it's not going to work because you have to pass certain switches to say, yo, dog, I don't care. I don't want it to build for this other thing that it's going to break on just build it for the thing i'm trying to do and and so you're going to run into a lot of those kind of things as well that's if you're using the very niche yo dog language yeah exactly <laughs> during this process you are also going to find all the places where you screwed up on getting the code you may find that the code you have is missing pieces that are required for the compile even though you didn't find them before yeah what I find interesting is, I say interesting, what I've had happen is... It's interesting in a Chinese curse sense, right? Like, you may live in interesting times. They're trying to reduce code duplication. So you have three or four different applications in, like, web apps in the same code base. Yeah. Unrelated to one another. And it's just like, all right... You comment out this section of the config and then uncomment this other section of the config to run it. And then you deploy it to this area for that. And then you change it into, oh man, it's. Or a, you shell execute to some other app for part of the yeah. stuff and it's not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It gets really nasty pretty fast. The thing about it is, is there's probably going to be other pieces that are required for the compilation you'll find things like binary resources. So images that are used on buttons, those kind of things may not be there. They may not have been source controlled properly. They may not, you know, be the same version, even though the rest of the app looks the same. Somebody reskinned it or whatever. You may find that they have corrupted files. So like old source control systems, VSS, Visual Source Safe, used to be really bad about this. It would barf all over your file system if you had a merge conflict and it would put a whatever dot merged dot the file extension out there. And that would be sitting there in the project directory. And now your code won't compile because of a merge conflict. And you were expected to go through and manually like fix that in a text editor. Mm. And so you'll get weird stuff like that. And people didn't notice it and they checked stuff in or they backed it up and that's what you have. And so like the code legitimately could never compile on anything until you fix that. Yeah. To make this whole process easier, you need to make sure that you keep the relevant people in the loop as far as your progress. It can be really tempting to isolate yourself and to just keep slamming your head into the wall to try to fix this, but that's a really bad idea from an office politics standpoint. Mm -hmm. You need to make it very clear that, hey, this wasn't maintained well, and it's not my fault that this is a dumpster fire. Because if you don't, you'll get blamed for it. Yeah. You won't be doing work on an ancient system unless it was critical. Making sure that management knows you're working, what's blocking you, and all the things you've tried is very important. Yeah. Because they need to know the process that's going on. They need to understand how much effort it is to maintain this. I remember we had an older system that I was working on. It was one of those things that was just a regular maintenance item where they printed out a mail out and it was generated by the system except for the cover letter of the PDF, which had the dates of some classes and some trainings that they were doing. And that changed every year because, you know, they had them like, it was like the second 
Thursday of the month on these three months or something. So, but the actual date of that changed. And so they would have to submit a maintenance item every year to go in and change that so that they could then come and print it out. It's like, yeah, mind you, this was written 15 years ago when it made some sense to do that. I don't know. I wasn't around back then, but I I, kept the programmers from being unemployed. Yeah. Once a year. Yeah. Anyway, I was looking at this. I'm like, you know, I don't know this very well. Like it's not a language that I know that well, but I'm, they're trying to get me to learn it. And I'm like, I don't want to learn this, but whatever. Anyway, I go to my boss at the time and I was like, Hey, so, you know, they're having to go through this. It's like a two or three week process where they have to submit it. It goes through the review and then it goes to a developer. The developer works on it. Then it goes back through review and like it's like three weeks to get this done. They have to plan out a month in advance before they need this report printed out. It's like if we just took two or three months and one developer could go in there and adjust this so that because it's generating a PDF, like we could just have them input the dates and generate the other part of that PDF that doesn't change and then just put that as part of the other generated section of that PDF and then just have it build from there. And uh, I was kind of told, well, this has been working for 15 years. We don't want to change it. All right. But I was also told, we're we going to re- be rebuilding that system in a year or two anyway, so there's no point in spending the time fixing it now. What I'm getting at is that some of the mindset that you kind of have to deal with when you're telling management about these things is, one, well, it's been working so far, and two, well, we're going to replace it in a couple of years anyway, so there's no point in spending the work to fix it up to where we don't have to deal with this pain. Yeah. And part of the reason you're dealing with legacy stuff is because they've had that attitude for a long time. So yeah, understanding that the system is critical, that means a person that's calling the shots is way up the chain from you. So you need to make sure your manager looks good in this situation because you're not just risking you, you're risking them. Mm -hmm. So you got to be really careful about that. Now, one word of warning before you ever run any legacy code, get a backup of production because people did a lot of really, really stupid stuff back in the day. And that includes working directly against production and like running tests and doing all that stuff against the production database because, you know, they didn't have enough servers. Or the last time they checked in the code, they, you know, had fixed it to make it go to production and they check it in and back it up and that's what you got. So don't ever do this until you have a backup of production and don't assume that any config that you see necessarily covers everything. So you might see a connection string. It's like, oh, that's to the dev database, but there's something hard-coded in a resource file somewhere that goes to production. You will get nailed by this. So don't ever do that. It's less of a pain when you have a full record like the whole set of something in production because then your DBA that's been around for 200 years can go in and fix it because they know the whole system inside and out. But when it's, oh, well, it only wrote to these two tables over here and not the other stuff, it really throws everything off. Yeah, you'll just get surprised by this. And the the big deal here is you do not want to cripple a running legacy system before you have the ability to fix it. Because that makes you look real bad and it gets the attention of people you probably, you know, like you don't want to be on their radar unless it's for a really good positive reason. And this will not be one of those. Yeah. So check all your configs to make sure they're not pointed at production. If you know where the production server is, like do a full text search of your app to make sure that that server's name is never in any of the code that you have. Because I mean, people used to do really dumb things like hard code connection strings Mm -hmm. in the text. Used to. I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen it within the last few years. Yeah. So you got to watch out for that. Next is making it run and getting to a stable state because these are not the same thing. Yeah. Getting it running is how you find out all the other crap that's broken. So, like, this whole thing is basically a filtering process to get you to the point where you can actually touch the code. Mm -hmm. Your app may run on the first try after a build. At which point you go and you buy a lottery ticket because if you got that kind of luck, why not? But it's more likely that it's going to fail with some weird, obscure error message before it gets anywhere. Mm -hmm. Runtime environments have changed a ton over the years. And configuration as code, like what you do with Docker, didn't exist years ago. There might be a script somewhere and it probably also doesn't work. 
In addition to runtime issues, the first run will start showing you where your configuration is incorrect. So you may have things like your code is dependent on the operating system. Things sometimes change. You know, for instance, the Windows API has changed a lot since the first time I used it back in 1995. There's situations where it may look at the OS version and go, oh, you know, it begins with Windows, you know, space nine. And obviously I need to change the way I deal with things to deal with Windows 95. And if it doesn't begin with that, it assumes that it's Windows 3.1. And it turns out you're running on server 2016. Like these things happen. And you'll get burned most of the time by at least one or two of these. Runtime errors may be difficult to track down. Yeah. A lot of times the errors will be something completely unhelpful, such as a numbered error code, access violation, or just a hard crash. Oh, that's the best. It's my favorite. Yeah, where it's like on error exit. Yep. Just, you know, like throw your hands up and walk away. My favorite, honestly, is the uh, access violation because it's like, yeah, I tried to touch somebody else's memory. I'm not going to tell you who's, not going to tell you where, but bad things happened. Those are really, really nasty to try to troubleshoot. I mean, sometimes you'll be lucky and there'll be things like logging in place. And that could be to log files. It could be to an event log somewhere, those kind of things. Logging is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. You need to understand that this was not as common in the day. And so you're probably going to be unlucky and the logging system will actually be the cause of the error versus anything else. Like where they hard-coded a file system path that doesn't exist. You know, let's log to a network drive or some goofy crap like that. Like just the amount of stuff you'll see in old code boggles the mind. You might also get runtime errors from dynamic loading of other components that weren't specified in the build. So like it looks at a directory and says, okay, I need these DLLs from here, but that's never in the build script. So your app runs and then calls load library and goes out and gets that DLL. You don't find that out till runtime that it's not there. Yep. There are only a couple of ways to fix these issues. You either need to be able to pinpoint errors by logging or by debug breakpoints. So by logging, I'm talking about you actually write stuff out to the logs that says, I got to this point and here's the value of these variables where you can kind of poke at it and figure out what's going on. You might also be lucky and get a numbered error. So you can look in the code base and try to figure out what kind of error numbering scheme is used. This may help you find the source of the error. It also may not because like, for instance, it's Visual Basic and you got a error 91, that's basically useless because that's a null reference. Oh, it's one of my favorite errors of all time. Yeah, or 53, which is file not found. You know, going back to the episode of memory, like I did that in all the memory exercises with the Visual Basic errors, and unfortunately I'm stuck with them for life. <laughs> yeah, no, what I would do if I were just being rude or mean is I would go and I would set all of my errors to be 200s <laughs> and all my successes to be like four or five hundreds. <laughs> That's not very nice. <laughs> but you will make people look before they touch things. So there yep. is that. <laughs> so the underlying framework may also have numbered error codes and you want to check there as well. And that's what Will was talking about with all of his visual basic stuff. Next... You're going to have some troubleshooting to do on the configuration. Yes. A running version of the application is only a starting point. Your configuration is wrong. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out where configuration information is stored. And depending on the complexity of the system, that information may not all be in the same place. Yeah. Old school developers, they didn't value keeping everything together or keeping things organized so that a new person could come in because you got to bear in mind back in the day, if you got a job, you stayed there for your whole career. And so they didn't care. They're like, oh, it's a training issue. And that's not the reality now. As a result, you come in and the configuration is in 15 different places. And you're like, what in the world, man? It's like, well, it was a different time. Mm -hmm. This was a time when you had asbestos as an insulator. Okay. Like it isn't now. Be especially cautious of things like server paths, username, password pairs, and that sort of stuff. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, especially if they're hard-coded, as you may need to refactor the code to put them in the configuration just to get things working. Yeah, and you also need to remember that whatever configuration was stored with the code may or may not be the configuration for the production system. 
right? There may be other stuff where they look and they say, oh, if this key is present in the INI file, then read the value out of it and do this thing with it. Otherwise, just go on with life. And that key isn't in the developer version that you have. You're going to have to go find those things because stuff will break and you won't see that key there and understand why until you actually look at the code. The next thing you need to do is establish a configuration that will work in your development environment. You're going to need a parallel version of the system that is completely separate from production. This includes file system paths, by the way, because people used to put stuff in the file system, for instance, instead of a CDN, instead of their database. There was a lot of stuff that got crammed into the file system back in the day for reasons that you're not aware of now. And you're going to have to completely have another environment that you know you're not going to break production with. Mm -hmm. Remember that you don't know the system very well. Yeah. And that means avoiding surprises. Yeah. Because you can't effectively mitigate them because of that. I mean, I've been running into this just recently at work. Not so much because I don't know the system well, but because it's a system that I wrote. And I've moved on to other things and moved into more of a figuring out how to incorporate third-party applications with our stuff and more kind of research role and assisting a junior developer who's maintaining the code that I wrote and just watching him go through it. I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm going, how teacher do I want to be and how help him fix the problem do I want to be? Yeah. A lot of the stuff that he's running into is just lack of knowledge of the code base because he didn't write it. And so some of it's just like, all right, I'm going to let you fumble for a little bit here and then I'll throw a few softballs at you, just like lob them over and be like, all right, here's a hint. Here's a hint. When he comes and asks for help is when I give him information. I don't volunteer it. And that's not out of any kind of meanness or anything, but it's to help him learn the system better. Yeah. You kind of did similar stuff to me. Yeah. You kind of have to play that game a lot and people forget to do that. And what you end up with is d junior developers that are dependent on you yeah. when you do that. And so you can't ever take a vacation because the entire team stops when you do. So you just have to do that, even if they're senior to you, if they're junior on that system. Yeah, that's true. And you end up with things like sending a message. I am at the dentist. Yeah, call Bob at this number. And you find out that Bob moved to Florida like 15 years ago. And that number is some random person who doesn't speak English now. Yeah. And people are calling that person and they're mad. <laughs> you know, like you'll see stuff like this. I mean, it's legit a problem. The other thing you got to pay attention to is to make sure you change as few things as possible while trying to keep a clean separation between this code and what's in production. So you're going to try to have to alter it so that you can mess with it. But you also have to minimize your changes so you don't break things. And you're going to get pressed to fix bugs before you have a clean working version on your own machine. Because the kind of management that has code that is this far out of date doesn't understand development. And so you're going to be in a situation and you have to resist the temptation to cave in on this because you are almost certain to break production if you do so. Mm -hmm. This is also a good time to spend some time going through the running code to make sure that your version really matches what's in production. If you see any discrepancies, you need to track down the reason. Right. So it could be config. It could be you don't have the right version of the code. It could be you don't have the right assets. It could be a hundred different things. But you need to find out why as quickly as possible so that you can recover from it. This is also a good time to take screenshots and start to make notes. So like keep visuals of any relevant screens alongside any notes that you have. This makes it easier to make sense of the code base. And so when management says, add a button here, you know what area of the code that it's in. It may not be completely simple to figure that out. So you need to have these things in advance before you're asked mm -hmm. you know, for a task that requires it. So it's data time, y'all. <laughs> like that. Once you've got a working version of the application, now it's time to build up a development version of any data you are using. You may be tempted to simply copy production, but this can lead to, well, a lot of problems. Yeah, production data may include paths. So you, you, know, you hit the database, you go, oh, where's that file? Here's the file system path on the network. And you just overwrote production because you're a dummy. Yep. And this will happen to you all the time because you don't know what's in the system and how the system reacts. So you have to be very, very careful. Mm -hmm. 
Data of this sort can be a real liability when you're trying to work on the application just in general. You can also make a mistake in production if the data is the same because you're not realizing that you're connected to the wrong server. So like you're looking at it in production and you're looking at it in dev. If it's the same data and you're like, oh, I need to bulk update this so that I can develop on it and you update production. Oops. Yep. Management is not very likely to see a need for sanitizing data and getting a copy that is different than production. I gotta say, this is one thing I do like about the management where I work is they do understand this. Yeah, that's rare. You need to point out that the development version of the data may need to be modified heavily so that you can quickly test a lot of scenarios that may not be represented frequently in the current production data. That's a pretty common use case. Another thing is compliance. If you happen to get in contact with the people who can help you outside your organization, aka former developers, you may need to send them data. You don't want to be doing that with real HIPAA data mm-hmm. going over the wire. That's a big no-no. You're going to get sued over that. It's easier to troubleshoot the data when you can send it back and forth, and it doesn't matter. You really have to use fake data. I mean, in your development and testing environments, you should be using fake data. Yeah, and not fake data that is easily reversible to real data either Yeah, is another thing I see a lot of. You should also insist on your own copy of any database server, file server, all those things that are used by the system. This lets you test serious system failure conditions without breaking things for the rest of your team. So for instance, you have a file server that this thing writes to. What happens when that file server goes offline Mm -hmm. or gets slow? You need to test that to stabilize because they probably didn't back in the day. And any new breaks are going to be blamed on you regardless of whether it's your fault or not. So you've got to have the servers to test because it's on you now. Next, you want to document the system as it is. If you don't already have documents for the system that are reasonable, you need to be creating them. You don't necessarily need a lot of detail, but you do need to draw out a rough system design so as to build familiarity with the overall system structure. And this is probably best done on paper where you can actually physically draw it out. It helps with creating that mental map of the system. Yeah, and you don't have to fight with a tool because you'll also find that they do stuff sometimes in old systems that you're like, okay, how in the world do I represent this in Visio? Yeah. Because it's just like, it's nothing anybody does. It's something that some programmer did 20 years ago and you don't know why. And there's nothing in in the way that the relational model works that even makes sense on this. But if you document the system as it appears in code, it makes it easier to compare that to the existing system so you can see how accurate Mm -hmm. the previous documentation was. A lot of times it will be even more inaccurate than anything else that you come across because somebody wrote it and then five years later they turned the system over to somebody else and they went and retired and the docs are five years plus out of date. Or there may not be any docs or the person that is maintaining the system may have been there at the same time as the person that wrote the system but they have made multiple quick changes that at the time they're like, oh, it's just a little bitty change. I don't need to update the documentation. But you do enough of those in the same code base and you have a completely different code base. Yeah, because the docs become lies if they're left alone. And this is another thing that happens. Source code might have been under version control and a proper regimen of backups but it's less likely that documentation went along with the ride Mm -hmm. and that the documentation matches what the system is. You really shouldn't start coding until you have a rough but accurate breakdown of how the pieces of the system fit together just so that you can touch things and be reasonably certain that you're not going to break things. Yeah. Second, this gives you time to build a mental model of the system so that you can test the assumptions later. There's a lot of mental games I guess, problem-solving mental games in development. And if you don't do this, you're basically playing chess with checker pieces. Yeah. You know, the other thing too is like, you may make a change in where you think the change needs to be made because you don't have complete docs and it doesn't change the part of the system that you think it does. Mm -hmm. Like you may change a label on some form and then find out that, well... This form looks the same as the other one because we copied stuff and then forked it 15 years ago because people did that instead of, you know, single responsibility principle type stuff. And 
you're making a change to a part of the system that that's you're not where you think you are. Yeah. And it happens all the time. The other thing here too is that you want to create a store of documentation so that other team members can jump in on this thing if you manage to get help on it. Because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is have the system be impenetrable. And they're like, oh yeah, this this dude can help you for six weeks, but then he's got to go. Because if you can get them in there and they're doing stuff, now they're also an expert too. And hopefully you can get away from this thing. You know, legacy projects, like if it's not a thing that you like, it's a thing to get away from. Oh. So now that you've done all this, it's time to fix that source control. Sound like a game show there. Once the system works, make sure you have it into a reasonable source control system. This means an appropriate strategy for branching and merging. I would suggest Git because Git is, in my opinion, one of the better ones. It's easy to use. It's pretty straightforward and you can command line it. You can script it. It's pretty good. I like using Git. Yeah, the rest of your team will get it too, which is the other thing. Yeah, they will get it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, That's the dad joke cleverness that comes out. So... The other thing that you're going to run into is that you may have some libraries in your code that need to be set up in Git as submodules, or they may need their own separate projects and build cycle and you know packages using whatever system you're using, those kind of things. You're going to have to break that stuff out in a logical sense so that the project can be maintained. Do not ever let management force you to move to a new source control and keep the semantics of the old source control. Like, oh, well, it's all in you know VSS, just move it to Git. That's not a thing. You've got to actually structure it where it's not a pain for the other developers because management will try to rush you just about anywhere and it's always wrong when they do it, but they don't know. Mm -hmm. The point of all this source control really is to get things set up so that you can roll back quickly when you break something. Yeah, because you will. Yeah, you know, unless you get fired, you know, right after this and you never legitimately touch the code, you're going to break something and it's going to probably be in a really bad way and you're going to get very little warning about it. Mm -hmm. Stuff breaks on legacy systems. I mean, systems were not clean back in the day like they are now. People coded based on the happy path. They made it so that if an error happened, the app closed. And that was it. Being able to revert to a previous source control version is critical for being able to recover from a screw-up, whether it was yours or somebody else's. Mm Mm-hmm. You're also going to want to be able to branch because you probably have a mix of bugs and the priority of these bugs is going to change a lot. So the kind of people that have systems that are this old also have a poor tendency to prioritize things. And so they, oh, this is a critical bug. Oh, this other customer came in screaming about this thing. Drop what you're doing and fix that. And they don't realize that this other thing is still busted. Yeah. And they want to roll it out. They can't get that in their head. So you've got to have branching capabilities. You've got to be able to do it quick. You want to make sure and explain to management why you're doing all this in terms they can understand. You can't count on your manager to understand the value of having proper source control around this stuff. So don't bother. Yeah, it's like, dude, manager man, you are running around with a fork in your hand. I'm keeping the electrical outlets at a different height. Yeah. Instead, what you want to do is explain it in terms of being able to both extend the system and manage any bugs that come up during the process. Uh, the branching feature of your modern source control systems is really the way to do this, dealing with the sort of managers who are constantly adjusting scope and priority. Yeah. Now, once that's in place, now you can decide what to actually work on. You notice this is way on into the outline because it's going to take a minute before you can actually touch a legacy system and not break the business. Don't pick your first bug based on priority. Pick it based on location. What I mean by that is you pick issues that are at the edge of the system or in places where there are not a lot of dependencies, either on that module and where that module doesn't have a lot of dependencies on anything else. The reason is so you can get experience messing with the system without messing with the whole system at the same time. Try to pick smaller issues, even if they're relatively minor and cosmetic. The point of the initial bug fixes is not to fix the system. It's to help you get comfortable with the system while showing some results. For example, the thing I was talking about where I had to go in and replace a PDF with the dates that had to be requested every year, I wasn't assigned to that because, you know, to go in and fix their system, I was assigned that to get me familiar with that system. Yeah. Because our lead developer could have done that in 30 minutes. Whereas it took me two days to figure it all out. 
but they wanted to get me familiar with the system in case she wasn't available and I had to go in there and do something. They didn't expect me to come back with, hey, you know, we could automate this and not have to do it every year. Right. And that's proof that you understood the system, right? Like, that's kind of what they were going for. It's just they caught a bigger fish than they threw the line out for on that one. Uh, They should have expected that knowing me. Yeah. So what you do here is you start to iterate. You take larger, more difficult bugs that touch bigger chunks of the system, essentially building your knowledge as you go. If you're working on a really old system, you're not going to learn all the weird corners of it, even in a few months or a few years. You're going to find stuff that still surprises you. So you pick the bugs based off of what part of the system it's going to show you versus off of the priority. Like management, I understand they got a priority, but if you try to fix something that's high priority and it touches a lot of the system, you're probably going to break something. This is a classic example of an explore-exploit problem. You should exploit or fix bugs in an area until your learning slows down, and then you should explore. Look for bugs in new areas to continue your growth. And they think you can exploit without exploring, which doesn't happen. That's not a thing. And you're going to run into that a lot. Now, once you're kind of there and you're starting to fix things, now you should be able to fix the problems management hasn't considered. So management may not have considered security bugs, out-of-date components, those kind of things. With familiarity in the system, now you can start touching those. Mm -hmm. Security risks to the code are a major problem, but you aren't equipped to fix them until you understand the code base. You could make it worse if you don't know what you're doing. Right. You may also find that your hand gets forced on this. Sometimes the security team finds major issues before you're ready. I've seen this or when um, TLS updated. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of when I wrote this, actually. Yeah. Because that was, man, that was such a pain on so many systems. And the thing is, is like a lot of times the kind of management that has those sort of situations, they also don't get notified about this stuff until like it's already changed and you've got 90 days before you're in breach of contract to fix it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not a real happy place to find yourself. Yeah. The other thing is you got to approach patching and updating the same way you approached the other bugs that you dealt with previously. So you try to start with things that have few dependencies and few things dependent on them so that you can reason about it. You're going to find really interesting issues in your build process or other systems while you update third-party components, especially if the newer versions change things. They introduce incompatibilities, which if the code is old enough, that will happen 100% of the time with 100% of things. If you're storing dependencies in the file system, now is also a good time to consider slowly migrating to a package management system. You're going to have to approach the move to package management kind of slowly by upgrading things at the lowest level first and then updating the things that are dependent on those things Mm -hmm. and slowly working your way through. Depending on how the packages are structured, you may find yourself reworking code as the packages are upgrading. You know, a lot of older code may have been tangled together in a way that made it work poorly with package managers or with modern development practices like testing, and you're going to run into those things and you're going to have to refactor code to make that work and be able to switch to a package manager. Management will not understand any of this. So speaking of testing, we're going to get into that now. Testing is also going to be a lot of fun in true legacy code bases. Yeah, it at least gets the first two letters of fun. (laughs) Depending on the platform, unit tests may not be possible. In fact, they're probably unlikely, to be 100% honest. You will probably be stuck writing integration tests, and those are also going to probably be pretty janky. You should start uh, also introducing seams, where possible, that allow you to write effective tests. Testing is also going to require some changes to the existing code. You may want to start making changes that allow you to use tools such as dependency injection to provide services for your code. Oh man, I love DI. It's become my new thing. It really helps a lot because, you know, like back in the day, I'd never heard of that. You know, you broke things into objects, but the whole thing of, hey, if I have a dependency on this constructor, that's a problem if that constructor changes. Like that just wasn't in our head. Yeah. It wasn't in anybody's. And now it's like, oh, duh. But I mean, we just didn't think like that. And you're going to end up using this so that you can make the code testable so that you can introduce tests. Like that's the goal. And Mm -hmm. you may not be able to test a large part of the system, but you can test some of it. If management is hostile to the idea of automated tests, then you just don't tell them. 
you know, I hate to be blunt like this, but this is one of those things where management is pushing things that are a bad idea and they're going to get burned and then they're going to blame you. So like, don't necessarily ask if you think they're hostile. Sorry, we're going to automate, you know, the test and we're just not going to tell you about it. And I hate to say that, but like I've been on the receiving end of the other way and it just doesn't work. Really, you're going to have to be able to make sure you didn't break things when you make a change. So you have to write code to try to catch the major issues and just exercise the system, you know, smoke test it, those kind of things. When apps get really old, they probably have a resistance to newer development techniques. That attitude is the reason some of these apps stick around for longer than they should because they work even though nobody can really maintain them. Mm -hmm. But the big thing here is don't set up a dynamic where management forces you to do things in a stupid way and then blames you when they get stupid results. Now, some final notes as we close it out. Legacy code is not exactly a bad thing. If it did the job for years, it's actually pretty good. These projects often have a lot of exposure to higher-ups in the company. Do well and use the exposure to your advantage. Yeah, if the system's going to continue to be used, being the main resource for it can help your job security and it can give you negotiating leverage when it comes time for you know salary mm-hmm. renegotiation, those kind of things. Yeah, a lot of other developers are going to shy away from nasty legacy code and you can play on this to build your reputation. Yeah, here's the crazy guy that messes with that system. You know, like I don't want to touch that. He handles it. Let's hope that he is happy and let's keep him that way. Yeah. If you're in that position, that's a good spot to be. Yeah. Especially as a recession's coming, which it's just about got to. Like it's getting to be time. Be willing to leverage information asymmetry with management. There are things they need to know and things they really don't and they don't want to know. Yeah. Because knowing is a liability. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're covering it, don't tell them. Legacy systems are a good place to talk your way into other parts of the organization as well to make powerful allies if you want to do that. So like if you want to get in, you know, good with the CFO for some reason because they're doing something interesting, they have a legacy app somewhere that you can probably help on and you can make those contacts, especially in a bigger org. Also, old, poorly structured and out of date code will teach you things you can't learn elsewhere. You'll see why things are the way they are now. Y'all, legacy code is tough to deal with. If you're used to modern development practices, Getting stuffed into a legacy project can often feel like being plunged into ice water. However, it doesn't have to be that way. With an ordered, structured approach, you can take control of a legacy project and put yourself into a better position, even if that doesn't mean learning the latest JavaScript framework. Best of all, such projects are often critical to keeping systems running and highly visible to the important people in the organization. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to suggest some things. Mercilessly leverage things that are to your advantage. You know, being nice in a corporate environment, like there's a point where that is workable. There's also a point where you need to shamelessly self-promote. You also need to be able to deal with situations that are not what you expected and it may even be negative and figure out how to roll them into something positive. Uh, you and I both have a friend, actually, we've got several friends like this, but we got one in particular that I'm thinking of that I think that if somebody just dropped a dumpster in his front yard full of garbage and lit it on fire, he would walk out his front door and look at that and go, oh, it's going to run the neighbors out and I could flip their house. Because his reaction to something negative is very quickly to figure out how to turn that to his advantage. And you have to do this with legacy systems a lot. Stop seeing things as a disadvantage and figure out how to turn it to your favor because that is usually there somewhere. One of my favorite allusions to this is the way that Pirates of the Caribbean, the way Jack Sparrow handled things, something went sideways and he just kind of rolled out of it and just kept on going. Cultivate that ability in your life because things are going to change, especially in the next 20, 30 years, like over the term of a career in tech, stuff is going to change a lot. And you are going to have to be able to roll with it and make something out of it, even if it's extremely negative, even if it's dealing with an awful legacy system. You know, you deal with a legacy system. Yes, it may suck right now. Five years from now, when you're the only person that can work on that thing, all of a sudden, that's a paycheck. So just be careful about how you look at this stuff and try to figure out how to make it to your advantage. And that's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. 
Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.